You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everyone. My name is Bill Taylor. Um, I'm uh, one of the vice presidents here at the Institute of Peace, and I'm very pleased to be able to open this session. Ambassador, ambassador, doctor, doctor, it's very good to have this this uh, distinguished group here, as well as people in the uh, in the audience here. Um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for us to, to have this conversation. It's been 50 years um, since the United States, uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the Republic of Vietnam, the Provisional Revolutionary Government of South Vietnam signed an agreement uh, to end the war. And uh, Ambassador Negroponte knows something about this uh, agreement. And he's, he says he's going to Tell us a little bit about that uh, uh, this morning. Uh, this allowed uh, the return of US troops. I know something about that. Um, and the release of American prisoners of war. Um, so 50 years. The post-war time um, has not gone, you know, not without difficulties. Uh, there were problems uh, d during that time. Um, after the capture of Saigon by the People's Army of uh, Vietnam and the unif unification of the country, it took another 20 years till 1995 for the U.S. and Vietnam to normalize relations. Since then, uh, our political, economic, educational, security relations have developed. Uh, they've improved. Um, we know that uh, we remember that Senator Patrick Leahy, um, who was a real sponsor of this effort here at the Institute of Peace, um, he, made the, he made the point that we've come a long way together uh, and we have further to go. Um, that's one of the purposes of, of this discussion here today. Um, Institute of Peace here, we do, we do conflict. Um, we try to prevent conflict, mitigate conflict, terminate conflict is a new concept. Terminate con conflict as well as uh, help work out conflicts afterwards. And on this business of what we're doing today, looking backwards, um, it also will help us, we hope, to look forward, uh, to look forward, to be able to use some lessons uh, that we may have learned, we hopefully have learned, um, about the <clears throat> Vietnam conflict um, uh, so that we can use uh, going forward. So I'm very pleased uh, to welcome this group of speakers that uh, we've already recognized um, on, on meaning and lessons of the Paris Peace Accords, including both Vietnamese and American perspectives from diplomats as well as historians. Um, Ambassador John Negroponte, um, I worked for him, uh, I follow him around. Um, <laughs> I follow him around. Uh, he didn't know it, but I was following him uh, in Vietnam. Um, he was trying to build peace. I was doing something else. <laughs> um, he was an aide to Henry Kissinger um, uh, during the Paris negotiations. Uh, uh, Professor Lian Han Nguyen um, uh, and uh, Carolyn Eisenberg, Dr. Eisenberg, uh, have both written books um, about, uh, this, uh, about this aspect um, from, of course, the North Vietnamese and the, and the U.S. perspective, respectively. Um, our first speaker uh, will be the uh, Vietnamese ambassador to the United States, um, uh, Nguyen Quoc Zum, um, no stranger to this building. Um, we're very glad to have you back, Mr. Ambassador. And uh, with that, let me turn this over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much and a uh, very good uh, morning to all of you. And uh, <coughs> Ambassador 
William Taylor, Vice President of the U.S. Uh, Institute for of Peace, uh, distinguished speaker, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, first, I wish to thank the U.S. Institute of Peace uh, for inviting me to uh, speak at this significant event today. Exactly one year uh, since I took office in Washington, D.C., exactly today. So it's a great honor. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. And I uh, also acknowledge and appreciate the USIP for its active role uh, and dedication in uh, promoting peace, uh, reconciliation, and uh, post-war settlement in places around the world, including Vietnam, over the years. You know, the 1973 uh, Paris Peace Accords, or the agreement on ending the war and uh, restoring peace in Vietnam, uh, was signed 50 years ago. And different parties, uh, people, and especially historians, might look at the event uh, from different perspectives. Uh, so let me share with you my uh, reflections from the perspective of a Vietnamese diplomat. Uh, broadly speaking, the 1973 uh, Paris Peace Accords reflected the overarching trend of peace, national independence, and anti-war movements taking place around the globe, including in the United States at the time in history. The peace accords were the results of the most complicated and prolonged negotiations in the modern Vietnamese diplomacy. They underlined the burning aspirations of Vietnamese people for peace, but one that must come along with national independence, freedom, and reunifications. While reflecting the dynamics on, on the battlefield, the accords were also the products of the, of the able negotiators who skillfully snatched the golden opportunity. And Ambassador John Neocorte, who is present here with us, was, was then the assistant to State Secretary Henry Kissinger was one among them. But we, uh, we should also acknowledge that above all, the long-awaited accords arrived at the expense of millions of the Vietnamese lives. For the parties concerned, the accord were a critical milestone for the United States. Um, they marked the end of its direct engagement into the most prolonged war of the 20th centuries. The controversial conflict that took its toll and deeply divided the U.S. society. For Vietnam, the accords ended our direct confrontations with the United States on the battlefield, paving, paving the way for the subsequent reunifications, reconstruction, and development of our countries into where it is today. For the entire society, uh, for the entire Southeast Asia, the accords were a key to ending the confrontations between the two blocks, enabling ASEAN to grow 
and expand into a strong and united associations, a comprehensive strategic partners of the United States, and a key part player in the Indo-Pacific architecture that we see today. For the Vietnam-US ties in particular, the peace accords closed behind a sad and painful chapter in the history of our bilateral relations and open up a pathway towards better mutual understanding and reconciliations. Although it took much time and great efforts to get there, the two countries normalized relations in 1995 and defined the comprehensive partnership that we will together celebrate its, its uh, 10th anniversary this year. Uh, well, uh, without the peace accords that ended the world 50 years ago, I'm not sure whether we can enjoy the Vietnam-US relations that are extensive and substantive as they are today. You see, Vietnam uh, has become the US seventh largest trade partners uh, all over the world. Yeah. As a two-way trade turnover exceeds uh, $130 billion last year, and our close people-to-people -people ties are being reflected by the 30,000 Vietnamese students in schools and universities across the United States. I totally agree with uh, Ambassador William Taylor in his opening remarks that the bilateral relations have been strengthened across the board from politics, economy, defense, and security to education. Uh, Assistant State Secretary Daniel Crittenbrink once said, and I quote, the sky is the limit for the US-Vietnam partnership. So I agree with Dan uh, as well. And, uh, Believe that I believe that uh, our bilateral relations are excellent uh, 50 years after the peace accords. Uh, and, and there is still much room for it to go to grow to new heights. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, looking back at the Paris Peace Accords uh, and the past 50 years' journey, I think there are several major lessons that we can learn from. First, the success of diplomacy helps end most of the wars and conflicts. Of course, the results of negotiation reflect the dynamics in the battlefield. However, if the parties can engage in diplomatic dialogues with good faith and with a human spirit that goes beyond hatred and selfishness to find solutions meeting their respective legitimate interests, then uh, that would be the essential condition to ending their wars and conflicts, and thus saving hundreds, thousands, or even millions of lives. That lesson remains relevant in our world today, where devastating conflicts and unnecessary wars are still taking place. Second, uh, preventing a war is hard, but it is worth the try rather than going into a war and then spending decades to settle its consequences. To preserve peace and prevent conflicts, 
countries, especially bigger ones, need to know the history, the deep aspirations and legitimate interests of smaller ones. The 1973 Paris Peace Accords reflected the intense aspirations of the Vietnamese people for peace, national independence, and reunifications. So I'm certain that if the then American leaders had understood the Vietnamese history and the deep aspiration of the Vietnamese, Vietnamese nations, they would not have decided to engage into that war. Third, there is no way that you can break the will of a nation by force. In our world today, while conflicts may still be taking place here and there, peace, cooperation, and development remain the prevailing chance. Dialogue remains the right option to settle differences. Cooperation and dialogue should be fostered in place of confrontations. Fourth, the spirit of shelving the past and working together towards the future in the reconciliation and expansion of the Vietnam-US relations has become an example for parties in the aftermath of wars and conflicts. We have gone from foes to friends as we step by step fostered mutual understanding, reconciliation and strengthened cooperation in various areas to become comprehensive partners in 2013. So this year, we will be celebrating both the 50th anniversary of the Paris Peace Accords and the 10th anniversary of the Comprehensive Partnership. Looking back at the past is a useful way to better understand the present and be better prepared for the future. So I believe that lessons from the past, including the 1973 Paris Peace Accords, will help Vietnam and the US uh, better understand each other, grow stronger ties, and have greater respect for each other's interests. I have every reason to believe in the brighter futures of the Vietnam-US relations that will serve the interests of both our peoples and benefit peace, stability, cooperation, and development in the Indo-Pacific and beyond. So that concludes my remarks. I thank you very much for your kind attention and please accept my best wishes for your good health, happiness, and success. Thank you. Many thanks, Ambassador Zutten, for those reflections which link the history of the Paris Peace Accords with the, the present day of U.S.-Vietnam relations. Um, and thanks also to you and your colleagues at the Embassy of Vietnam for your cooperation in organizing this event uh, and other work of USIP's Vietnam War Legacies and Reconciliation Initiative. Uh, I'm Andrew Wells-Dong. Uh, worked on that initiative now for a year and a half at USIP. So it's great to see you all here today. And it's my uh, responsibility to introduce our uh, remaining panelists. Uh, so 
first to start with Ambassador John Negroponte, uh, whom Ambassador Taylor already uh, introduced in part. Uh, he has an extensive diplomatic uh, and national security career that started in Vietnam, um, in Hue, and then he was the Vietnam uh, office director at the National Security Council during the Nixon administration. So was an assistant to uh, National Security Advisor Kissinger at that time, supporting the peace talks with Vietnam. Uh, subsequently, he's been ambassador to Honduras, Mexico, the Philippines, the United Nations, and Iraq. Um, and his most recent position was as Deputy Secretary of State uh, under the George W. Bush administration. And since 2009, he's been teaching at multiple universities and um, at McLarty Associates here in Washington. Ambassador Negroponte has been described as the last American diplomat, which I really hope is not the case. Not true. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Welcome to USIP, Ambassador. It's great to have Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I know I'm not the last American. <laughs> I guess I guess it sounded like a catchy title to the the author. <laughs> um, the. Ambassador Taylor, sir, thank you very much to the Institute of Peace for uh, organizing this symposium on the 50th anniversary of a very important accord signed between the United States and, uh, and Vietnam. Uh, and thank you, Ambassador, for your comments. The Ambassador mentioned that, you know, you can look at the Vietnam War from, and the peace from uh, many different perspectives. And I want to tell you, I have held almost all of them in my life. Um, I think we've all had, and those of you who lived during the war uh, know that both endless nocturnal event debates we used to have, those of us serving in, uh, in Saigon, um, and the endless internal debates we had within ourselves about what we were doing and whether we were doing the right thing. And I, I ha have some of the letters that my parents received from me during that time, and I see that I, I have seen that I espoused every which view about the conflict at one time or another. I was a neutralist. I was a pacifist. I wanted to bomb the heck out of North Vietnam, on and on and on. I guess as you go on in life, your views tend to firm up a little bit more, and I probably have a more consistent perspective today than I did at the time. But I, I want to mention a couple of historical points uh, before I talk about the accords themselves. And the first is, I've always been very impressed by the correspondence that uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt had with each other. And those of you who've looked at that correspondence, which is really fascinating, riveting, they, towards the end of World War II, started having a really pretty acrimonious debate about uh, Roosevelt's view that the Brits should get rid of their colonies. Uh, and he was really very adamant about that. And, um, Churchill would consistently respond that he had not been elected prime minister to 
preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. And, uh, but Roosevelt was very firm on this, and that's what he felt ought to be done. And of course, Rose, Franklin Roosevelt died in April of 1945. The war hadn't ended yet. And uh, Harry Truman uh, took over. And you gotta wonder whether if Roosevelt, I know this is a counterfactual and a what if, but I think it's a pretty damn big what if. Um, when Ho Chi Minh declared the independence of Vietnam in September, right, of 1945, had Franklin Roosevelt been alive, what would he have done, given what he uh, professed to believe? So I just want to leave that one out there and then contrast it with what Harry Truman actually did, which was to listen to the all-powerful and not that revered uh, institution by others in the State Department, the European Bureau, and uh, which was powerful then, and, and it's always thought of itself. Uh, I remember uh, one of the assistant secretaries saying once, we're the only global bureau. Um, and that was in recent times. Um, and they advised uh, Mr. Maybe it was Atchison at the time, uh, or Marshall, I can't remember whom, uh, the Secretary of State and Harry Truman that we should, uh, the French really needed a lift for their morale. They'd suffered so much during World War II and we should help them by helping transport troops back to the colonies. And uh, so we helped uh, the colonial powers restore uh, their authority in Vietnam. Uh, after World War II. And so I always felt that that was a pretty important uh, turning point. The other historical reflection I'd like to make is when uh, the Berlin Wall fell and then the Soviet Union collapsed. I, I was ambassador to Mexico at that time and um, I was having a reception at the embassy and the famous uh, Mexican author and philosopher Octavio Paz was one of our guests and I was in a bit of a celebratory mood about what had happened to the Soviet Union and stuff and he looked at me very seriously and said uh, yes but you know history never stops and uh, that's true history doesn't stop and so while we I agree about studying the lessons of history I'm all for that but uh, we just have to remember also that it goes on and it uh, has amazing and I think sometimes wonderful twists and turns and things that just looked impossible 50 years ago are uh, very possible today. And so we should always keep our eyes and our minds, I think, open to the possibilities that exist within relationships. And I, for all the uh, frustration and I think, candidly, unhappiness that I felt at the time of the Paris uh, Peace Accords, uh, I have been somebody who has applauded the development of U.S.-Vietnam relationships uh, during the period of normalization. I was one of those, like some of the famous senators, John McCain and others, Ambassador Peterson, 
who were advocating for, you know, getting over it and let's establish relations as soon as possible. Let's not hold grudges, which the United States does do quite well sometimes. I mean, we've held a grudge against uh, Fidel Castro and the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, for an awfully long time now. And uh, no one, we seem afraid uh, and hesitant to explore what the possibilities might be of some kind of other relationship. Uh, not, now is probably not the time to advocate for relationships with Iran, but uh, I, I think you get my point. Uh, we, can, we can hold grudges for a long time. So I was in Vietnam from 1964 to 68, uh, working at the embassy, working at the consulate in Hue, it was my second assignment, actually, in the, to the Foreign Service. I'd been in, in Hong Kong. Uh, I got to travel over much of the country, especially central Vietnam. Got to know it quite well. And then uh, I left Saigon in early 68. I left three weeks before the Tet Offensive. I had no inside information. I just happened to have left uh, three weeks before then. And that was another turning point, if you will, because General Westmoreland made an incredible error. I mean, nobody ever really points this out. But in the wake of the Tet Offensive, he asked for 206,000 uh, more troops to be sent to Vietnam. Now, I think that was one of the most foolish messages that was ever sent to Washington headquarters. And imagine if Bill, Bill Westmoreland had sent a message saying, Mr. President, uh, we have uh, uh, dealt a very significant blow to the Viet Cong in, of South Vietnam. They're, they're practically uh, decimated for all practical purposes. And I think you can now safely withdraw 200,000 troops from this country. I think that recommendation would have entailed very, very little risk for the United States strategy at that time. And it might have affected the mindset of the American people uh, about the war um, rather than all walking around thinking that we'd suffered some kind of terrible defeat and had to get out of there. So uh, I just suggest you might want to reflect on, on that point as well. I think the the way Westmoreland sort of dealt with this situation uh, had a negative impact, I think, on attitudes towards our continued involvement. Uh, my uh, debate or quarrel with, uh, when I have that little internal argument inside of myself, with our Vietnam policy during that time was more with the way we fought the war than how we ended it. Uh, I feel that, uh, and I attended meetings at the embassy in Saigon. We called it the, it wasn't the country team as we normally refer to the leadership of a mission. It was called the Mission Council. And both uh, Ambassador Bunker chaired it and uh, General Westmoreland was a member of it. And I remember uh, one year he gave a briefing on our strategy towards Vietnam, our military strategy. And, and he got up there on the blackboard and he described it. It was very clear, very simple graphic where he put, uh, here are the People's Liberation Army in the north. Here's uh, 
American troops, uh, the South Vietnamese army will defend the villages, and uh, that's the way it's going to be. We'll, we'll do the brunt of the fighting. He really believed that the American troops should do the brunt of the fighting. And I walked out of that meeting scratching my head and saying, isn't that a prescription for a perpetual U.S. presence in Vietnam? And where is the effort to make the South Vietnamese forces more capable? And it took the advent of General Creighton Abrams to change that approach and develop the South uh, Vietnamese Army. And if you look at their performance, for example, during the Easter Offensive in 1972 uh, and onwards, uh, they made a very credible showing, much better showing than, than they would have made four or five years uh, earlier. So, you know, you could ask yourself, if we'd had a Vietnamese Vietnamization policy much earlier, uh, could that have made a difference? And by the way, to me, the Vietnamization issue is one which carries over into our policies generally. And as Ambassador Taylor will attest, when uh, he and I arrived in Iraq, we had zero money in our reconstruction budget to defend, uh, to help uh, develop and uh, train and equip uh, the armed forces of Iraq, zero. And I said, something's really wrong with this picture. Uh, they, we had money for water, we had money for creating a com consumer product safety uh, agency. We had, we had, you can imagine every little pet project that anybody ever had on the civilian side, they had it for in that $17 billion reconstruction program, zero for the military. And the Pentagon at that time had no money in its budget for the Iraqi armed forces. And I pleaded with Washington, and I asked Bill, actually, to do a review the first month I was there, and we recommended to Washington, as a consequence of that review, to reprogram two or three billion dollars to the training and equipping of the Iraqi forces. And for me, that was a direct lesson uh, from Vietnam, if you're talking about uh, lessons learned. Um, just a little bit about the peace process, um, which I was involved in really at two different stages. The first was with uh, Ambassadors Harriman and Vance when Lyndon Johnson uh, selected a delegation to go out to Paris in May of 1968. And I, uh, I was part of that delegation. Uh, Philip Habib, who was a very revered foreign service officer, was the senior career person on the delegation. And he asked Dick Holbrook uh, to pull together the rest of the team. And Dick and I were good friends and knew each other well. And he asked me to be part uh, of the team. And so I went out there, and I was there for uh, about a year and a half from May of 68 to, well, actually about 14, 15 months. And uh, <clears throat> I was there for the phase which led to the halt of the bombing in November of uh, 1968. And uh, that <laughs> it's the next lesson, 
about negotiations. Uh, and, and, and it happened again in 1972. It, it just some interesting coincidence always caused the North Vietnamese to make their critical proposals on, on the beginning of October of a presidential election year in the United States. And I can even remember later talk pulling his paper out of his tunic and telling Dr. Kissinger in October, October 7th to be exact, of 1972, you're in a hurry, aren't you? You won't find that in any record, I'm sure. But that's what Leto Tell said. Uh, and uh, we tried to, and, and uh, Dr. Kissinger followed the script that I think North Vietnam hoped he would, uh, would do. And that happened in 68 as well. And we ended up with the bombing halts over uh, North Vietnam. Uh, just one insight about those talks, just to give you a little bit of a flavor of the way, uh, maybe, a, I'm not, obviously he wasn't a typical American, Averill Harriman was a billionaire, but, uh, but how they thought about Vietnam. Harriman had spent his World War II as uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's representative in London, and then he went to Moscow to be the envoy uh, to Joseph Stalin. Uh, during the latter part of the war. So he always talked to the Vietnamese delegation about Stalin. And I'm not sure they really cared to hear that much about Stalin. I, they never, they were always expressionless <laughs> whenever he talked about Stalin. But, uh, but he had sort of Stalin on his mind when he was talking to, uh, and I'm sure he was trying to show that he had credentials for dealing with a communist regime. I mean, that was uh, clearly his message. But it went a little further. And he called me into his office one day. We were in the embassy building in Paris. And he took several hundred uh, French francs out of his pocket. And he said, John, for the next tea break, we had rented a safe house out in uh, the suburbs of Paris somewhere. I can't remember. I was involved in uh, finding the safe house. but." Um, he said, John, for the next tea break at our secret meeting out in the suburbs at the safe house, I want to serve them caviar. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert about Vietnamese culture, but I know something. And I said, well, Mr. Ambassador, that's fine. And I said, please, let's serve caviar, but we better also have something sweet. Uh, <laughs> at, the, at the tea break and so we also bought some very nice cakes and this and that and I was doing my little catering uh, job there <laughs> for Averill and I went down to the caviar store and bought the caviar um, and then, then I bought cakes and I remember Harriman watching at the tea break what the Vietnamese delegation ate and of course they all ate the sweet cakes that we had, <laughs> we had served them and it was my, I, I was the winner in the situation because I love caviar <laughs> and, uh, um, but that, that was just a little vignette. Um, the one thing I'd say about the Paris talks is that the title and the ambassador read the title it's the agreement to end the war and restore peace to Vietnam. We're very good at using uh, euphemisms, right? Now, you know what that agreement was. We all know what it was. It was a withdrawal agreement. 
That's all it was. Uh, it was a withdrawal agreement, pure and simple, and it was not what the ambassador, the title, the ambassador read because that happened afterwards, right? If I remember correctly, uh, certainly uh, the, the fighting wasn't over, and I, I chuckled to myself because when we negotiated the status of forces agreement with Iraq at the end of the Bush administration. When it was over, I called up Chet Crocker. I said, Chet, you've done exactly the same thing we did in 1973. You've signed a withdrawal agreement from Iraq. You remember it provided for withdrawing by the end of 2011. And that's really all that that agreement was about. So we have a way sometimes of euphemistically describing uh, the kind of agreements we enter into and I hope we weren't under any illusion. And I do, if nothing else, I would fault Dr. Kissinger for uh, writing a book called Ending the Vietnam War, because he did not end uh, the Vietnam War unless you uh, want to give him credit for having created uh, the opportunity, the, created, I, I would argue, the certainty for Hanoi's ability to uh, bring the war to a rapid conclusion uh, in their uh, favor. Uh, all that said, uh, there's been a lot of water under the dam since. I, I couldn't uh, agree more that, uh, I don't know if the sky is the limit, when, when Mr. Crittenbrink uh, uses that phrase. Um, but we have certainly come a long way in the relationship. We may have started a bit late. I think the 1990s was late. We could have probably done it 10 years earlier if we'd seen fit. But I think it's a good thing. Um, I personally, I felt the same way about North and South Vietnamese. I mean, I like the Vietnamese people a lot. I think I would say I even love Vietnam. I think it's a, a wonderful country, and I think it suits United States interests to uh, develop that relationship the very best we can, uh, not only for uh, geopolitical reasons, and those uh, do exist, but I think also just intrinsically, I think it's uh, in, in our interest and I think it's, uh, it fits very well also with uh, our interest in cultivating, nurturing, strengthening the best we can our relations with the six or 700 million people who live in the 10 uh, ASEAN countries. So I think it's a part of the world that uh, uh, makes great deal of sense for the United States to pay attention to and uh, uh, I think it behooves us to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador, for both personal and historical uh, reflections. So our last two speakers are both historians, as Ambassador Taylor introduced, who have written important books 
about this period. And so I'm interested in their reflections on what they've heard from uh, the ambassadors and also on the meaning of, of this anniversary. Uh, so uh, Lian Hang Nguyen is a professor at Columbia University, um, is the author of Hanoi's War and International History of the War for Peace in Vietnam. And she's currently working on a history of the Tet Offensive uh, and, uh, and other books. So uh, welcome, uh, Professor Han. Okay, so it's going to be hard to follow two amazing ambassadors. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try. Uh, but at first, before I begin, I just want to thank uh, Andrew Wells Dang for inviting me here today, and also to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Vietnam, as well as the U.S. Institute of Peace, to Ambassador Taylor, to uh, Ambassador Yeoman, Ambassador Negroponte, and of course to Rusty um, for being on the panel today. Uh, sorry, I, I, I call her Rusty. Um, she goes by. Hair, she <laughs> <on there. laughs> um, so in following up, you know, uh, after the two ambassadors and being born a year after uh, the Paris Agreement, I can neither say I lived through this, so I, I don't have these great uh, anecdotes uh, that Professor, uh, that uh, Ambassador Negroponte had, nor am I, uh, was I from uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. I was born in the Republic of Vietnam, uh, so come from, hail from the South. So my uh, brief comments today really do come from this vantage point as a historian, as someone who is judging um, the history. And it's a, it's a kind of interesting position I explain to my students. You, you, are, you, know, you, you are a judge when you are a historian. You can reflect back upon these events and assign judgment evaluation to the events. And you know, coming here today when Andrew told me what this was going to be about, I'm like, why are we commemorating the Paris Agreement to end the war and restore the peace, as Ambassador Negroponte had just said, and Ambassador Yulm had, had read out the title, because it did neither. It was just a withdrawal agreement for the United States. So why is it then should we mark this occasion? Because it, it, it failed in both of those objectives. And of course, the war didn't end until 1975 with the fall or liberation of, of Saigon. So it's an interesting exercise that we're doing today. But when I teach this, then I'm like, OK, so why did it fail? And I think I have a few reasons. And I would love to discuss this, because I do see many uh, other historians in the room, as well as participants. Um, as well as, uh, most importantly, I think also the MOFA, the Vietnam Foreign Ministry, because one of the things that I think we can all agree upon is this, you know, what Ambassador Yung put forward today in representing the Vietnamese government is a very positive spin um, on just this sort of penultimate end uh, to that war, and that takes a very, very, you know, a, for the, the winning side to be able to do that, despite the millions who had died as a result of, of the Vietnamese Civil War and particularly American military intervention. I applaud that positive history, but I think I would just say, no, we, we have a very, we, we need to judge it in a much harsher light. So why did the Paris negotiations fail? Well, think about it structurally. So there are these public talks, four-party public talks that included the United States, 
uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, uh, the, Re Repu the Democratic Republic, Republic of Vietnam, and eventually the Provisional Revolutionary Government. So those were open. Uh, they were very well covered by the international media. We all could track the progress or lack of progress of those talks. But it didn't matter what, what transpired uh, at these public um, proceedings. It was really these secret bilateral talks. And bilateral, it was between the United States and North Vietnam to decide the fate of South Vietnam with neither the Republic of Vietnam or the Provisional Revolutionary Government uh, in attendance at these secret meetings that the world press could not cover and could not evaluate and could not share with the public uh, world opinion to say, wow, that you know may maybe negotiations um, aren't going very well and we should have a better say, uh, you know, kind of give feedback to our leaders. So, so we didn't know. We didn't know about it until the very end of the process, close to 19... 1972 that these were taking place. So structurally, something was not going to produce a viable political compromise or diplomatic settlement to end that war. Just structurally, it was, it was impossible. And then another reason, if you look more closely, look at the, the powers involved. I think it's not any one side that's to blame. I think the failure of producing a peace agreement uh, at Paris lies at the feet of all of the parties involved. So if you look at the United States, what was the strategy that the Nixon administration had going in uh, in 1969? Well, that was publicly peace with honor, but what does that mean? Um, I think in the way that, that most historians um, teach that, that means that you know it's basically the same strategy that was in place under previous American administrations, and that is the preservation of a non-communist South Vietnam at all costs. Uh, so in that sense, again, it wasn't then to really end American uh, intervention. It was to preserve a non-communist South Vietnam, but no administration, LBJ administration, could not, could not crack that nut. Uh, Nixon and, and Kissinger believed that they had a better chance and they were going to try, uh, despite having less room for maneuver than the previous administration. Um, then let's look at the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. What uh, strategy did Le Yung and Le Duc Tha, who I've identified as the two leaders uh, in Hanoi, what was their strategy? Well, here too, I don't believe that it was to uh, negotiate to, to come to a speedy end to uh, the war. In fact, it was, you know, what I've argued is it's talking while fighting, which is what Le Zuan had already uh, outlined. But what does that mean? I think in the way he believed it was to focus more on the fighting aspect than on the talking aspect, uh, to carve out a military advantage uh, on the ground so that it would have a uh, better impact at the negotiating table. So until that great decisive victory could be had militarily on the ground, there weren't going to be substantive talks to end the war, just biding time. Now, what about the uh, Republic of Vietnam? Well, here it was quite clear in the Second Republic under Nguyen Bang Thieu um, in this period from 68 uh, all the way until the week before, uh, well, on April 21st uh, when he stepped down, it was to consolidate his firm grasp, his power over the Republic of Vietnam and to ensure that the United States leave very slowly, if at all. So if none of the parties actually had that desire to negotiate uh, a peace uh, that would be, uh, that would actually bring an end to the hostilities uh, and come to some sort of political compromise, none of those powers in 1968-69 had those objectives. Instead, as I just kind of outlined, they were different. The 
you know, and then if you look at the two sides, and here again, uh, there are complications. So the United States and the Republic of Vietnam never really were unified in their negotiating strategy. The Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the provisional revolutionary government were. They were a much more effective negotiating team, um, and they had a much better diplomatic strategy than the United States and the Republic of Vietnam that were pursuing uh, different, different objectives uh, during this period. So that's so. First, structurally. Second, just look at the, the at the strategies of of the of the combatants of the war leaders in Hanoi, uh, in Saigon, in Washington D.C. Uh, the third thing I'll point to is again when I teach uh, about the failure of the peace agreement is look at the international. Uh, context, and I think here it's very important because there were massive changes taking place. Uh, you know, one of the things I say is when you teach about the Vietnam War, of course you have to teach about that in the context of the Cold War, of the U.S.-Soviet rivalry. But you know what's also important? The Sino-Soviet split, and the Sino-Soviet split underwent massive changes in this period. Uh, what you had happen, of course, at the very start of the negotiations, the first. Uh, hostilities that transpired between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China in March of 1969. Uh, when these border troops uh, you know, opened fire against one another, these Russian and Chinese troops, that was a game changer for the Vietnam War. So I actually, when I teach this, I, I ask the students, I'm like, what was the most important battle that took place uh, in March of 69 that had an impact on the Vietnam War? And they're throwing out, well, was it something, was it, you know, um, was it something that, that transpired at, uh, you know, at, at, in, in northern Vietnam, the Central Highlands? And I'm like, no, it's, it's the Usuri River uh, border clashes. And why? Because it's at this point that China identifies the Soviet Union as its number one enemy and no longer the United States. So what you have is the beginning of the seeds being planted for Nixon and Kissinger's superpower diplomacy to actually uh, yield fruit uh, because of these massive changes taking place in the international uh, proletarian movement and to the Sino-Soviet split. It becomes bloodier. So for the first time, the U.S. administration can actually square the Sino-Soviet Vietnamese triangle, which was already a very difficult uh, juggling act that Hanoi leaders had to perform even prior to March of 1969. Uh, but what you have at this point is now an opening for third-party players, and particularly, again, China and the Soviet Union, to have an impact on the Vietnamese uh, peace agreement. So again, another factor of why the agreement uh, wasn't going to actually uh, yield a, a, a lasting peace. Another element, of course, is look at the fighting on the ground. What transpires between 1969 all the way to 1970 and 73? You have, uh, you know, again, while Operation Rolling Thunder, so sustained bombing has ended. Nixon still has the ability to bomb North Vietnam, and he's holding that very, uh, very, uh, you know, the very valuably and, and, and close to, to him in terms of uh, having a strategy to, to really carve out that military advantage and to bring North Vietnam to its knees. So they're still bombing in there. And of course, what we saw is Operation Menu. Um, and so what you have with Operation Menu and then also in the expansion of the ground war, you have the regionalization of the Vietnamese war. Yes, Cambodia and Laos were always intricately involved in the Vietnamese war effort. They couldn't escape what was happening uh, next door, but you have the official regionalization of the war uh, with the joint U.S. Arvin incursion into Cambodia and then, of course, Lam Sung 719. So the war isn't winding down. In fact, it's expanding beyond the borders of Vietnam beyond 
the bombing, the secret bombing beyond the regionalization of, of the Vietnamese War. Uh, you're also going to have the largest uh, ground offensive that the North Vietnamese are going to undertake since the Tet Offensive. And of course, that's the 1972 Spring-Summer Offensive, also called the Nguyen Hue Offensive, also called the Easter Offensive. So again, why are we discussing this protracted uh, peace negotiations when, uh, again, what it, what, it, what, it, what it amounted to at this point was just another theater of battle, another place to buy time or to find an advantage when the armies could actually duke it out uh, on the ground. And then finally, I'll just point to but again, when I teach this, look at look at just even the final stretch leading to uh, January, late January of 1973. So right after uh, the Easter Offensive, I've argued in my book that in the summer of 1972, with the failure to retain Guangdi, uh, this is what prompts Lei Yung to kind of do a 180 on his negotiating or his diplomatic strategy, and that is no longer look. We have to remove two. And the United States has to withdraw at the same time. They cannot be separated. Well, at this point in the summer of, of 72, he's like, no, we'll negotiate the Americans out. We'll deal with you later. Um, in addition uh, to uh, to that, you also have, of course, and this is what uh, Ambassador Negroponte, uh, you know, while the North Vietnamese always did kind of bring out something in October of, uh, of a presidential election, U.S. presidential election year, so too did the Vietnamese, so did the South Vietnamese, I'm sorry. In, in uh, the fall of 68, that was to uh, reaching out and, and Corresponding, not reaching out. There were actually many channels uh, to the Nixon Nixon team, and that was to hold out. But he didn't need to be told to hold out and not send a delegation to Paris. He would have he would have figured that out anyway. Um, so he was much more astute, actually, than uh, the North Vietnamese in trying to sort of manipulate American uh, presidential elections. In the fall of 1972, this came in the form of a list of 69 modifications to an agreement that he was never a party to. Uh, in which there was only by way of captured intelligence did he actually find out the Vietnamese wording. Uh, here I've poured so much time and effort into looking at these uh, CIA documents and why uh, the Saigon uh, regime had such a problem with this administrative structure. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember those words. <laughs> <laughs> and here he was like, what is this? This is clearly governmental uh, yeah. uh, apartheid sure. commission. It's not just administrative. We have a problem with this. Uh, we can discuss as a group what Kissinger knew or what he didn't know. But, but just in that, this is the, the level of mistrust and lies and suspicion was just... Um, at such high levels, uh, so much so even between allies and enemies that I don't see how uh, an actual peace could have been, could have been produced by, by, uh, by January 1973. And of course, the most important one was right before the signing, there is a massive bombing campaign uh, that kills 2,000 uh, North Vietnamese uh, during the Christmas bombing that leads right to, right to the signing that basically just afforded the same agreement uh, that, was, that could have been had in October. Uh, of that year. So again, all these barriers to why the Paris Agreement never 
uh, you know, ended the war or restored the peace. And I'm just pointing out a few of these reasons why, but I would love to discuss uh, more, especially uh, with this group. But I'll, I'll end with just, you know, again, Andrew gave us um, some, some prompts and he said, so should this be the basis for uh, U.S.-Vietnam reconciliation or for other peace agreements? And I say, hell no, uh, because uh, I think it's a bad model. And fortunately, despite the fact that there is the 1973 Paris Agreement to end the war and restore the peace. U.S.-Vietnam reconciliation still managed to get off the ground by the 1990s. What I hope uh, is that we find maybe another historical example, and here I'll say, I don't know, this is, again, inspired by Ambassador Negroponte trying to pull from my historical chops. I really liked teaching about the post-World War I era, and in particular, the spirit that gripped Europe to really abolish wars for all time, and that's the, you know, the spirit of Locarno. Uh, and I hope that that reigns in terms of U.S.-Vietnam reconciliation, the strengthening uh, of our comprehensive partnership, uh, as well as, I would say, between Vietnamese uh, abroad and Vietnamese in-country, because I think that's really where we can have most of the of the important reconciliation uh, efforts have to be made. It's really to to heal those wounds of war between former Vietnamese uh, who potentially were from the Republic of Vietnam, like myself, uh, and the Vietnamese living in Vietnam today. That I hope the spirit of Locarno reigns over us as well. Thank you. Thanks very much. And our final speaker is Professor Carolyn or Rusty Eisenberg, who's a professor of American foreign policy at Hofstra University. She's the author, most recently, of Fire and Rain, Nixon, Kissinger, and the Wars in Southeast Asia. Um, we'll go a little bit beyond the 10 o'clock hour so that she has time to share her remarks. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to start by saying it's really an honor to be here. Um, and to thank my fellow panelists that have made this discussion such an important one and uh, the U.S. Institute of Peace for inviting me and Andrew to encouraging me to join. Um, it really is a special honor today. I was thinking that um, it, 50 years ago, so this would have been, if it's exactly 50 years ago, it would have been the peace agreement had already been signed. But I think it would have been very difficult back then for anybody to envision an occasion like this because there was so much b bad feeling really all around. So the fact that we're all here today um, in a friendly spirit is itself, I think, very significant and, and meaningful. And of course, we're all coming from very different places. So for somebody of my age and background, when I come to Washington, what I think about is all those demonstrations that went on, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people that came back here over and over again marching for peace in Vietnam, and hopeful that with our feet that we would change what was going on, ending the war, and also very afraid that that would not be effective at all. Um, so coming from that place. But now I'm going to speak as a historian and not as a marcher. Um, and I thought it would be really inspirational to begin with a quote for Richard Nixon, who's barely been mentioned this morning. Um, so four days before the Paris Agreement was signed, uh, Richard Nixon went on television telling the American people that, quote, all the conditions he had laid down have been met. After an extraordinary effort, the United States had truly achieved peace with honor 
And he assured Americans that this, this settlement meets the goals and has the full support of President Thieu and the government of the Republic of Vietnam, as well as that of our allies. And he looked forward to a peace that lasts and a peace that heals. Well, you probably didn't need to come here to know that sometimes Richard Nixon did not tell the truth. <laughs> Just, but there's literally nothing in that statement that's true. <laughs> nothing. It didn't meet US requirements because the US had been trying for years to have a situation where the US would take its troops out and the North Vietnamese would take their troops out. Mutual withdrawal. Um, and that hope had, was long gone. But that would have been a very important American requirement. It wasn't met. Um, the agreement infuriated President Hu. When he, when he saw this agreement, his response was, quote, we're on the edge of catastrophe, on the brink of an abyss, uh, said, said President Hu. And actually, when Nixon heard that that's what he said, his response was, quote, when you think of what we've done for him on Cambodia, what we've done in Laos, what we've done on May 8th, Jesus Christ, he owes us one now, and he owes it damn fast. Um, so, you know, he wasn't... He was not confused about how the South Vietnamese um, viewed this agreement. And the third thing, which all of our speakers, I think, have really referred to, is that it didn't bring peace. And nobody thought it would. There was a clear expectation on every side that in a matter of, I mean, the, I'll go back and say, what wasn't clear was when would the fighting start again? That was a question. But there was no question that the fighting would resume. And as several of our speakers have said, this was an agreement that really um, was an agreement to cover US withdrawal and have the US leave in a, what was thought to be a face-saving way. But it certainly did not bring peace to Vietnam, and, and, and nobody really thought that it would. So why did Nixon and Kissinger sign this agreement? Um, and um, I've written about 500 pages on that topic, but uh, I'm going to like boil it down because I'm looking at the clock. Um, there are numbers of reasons why they signed this agreement, I, and several of them um, have been mentioned. Some of the factors were, were long-term factors, right? So the strength of the adversary, the determination of the fighters inside South Vietnam and the government of North Vietnam. That the, the willingness that no matter how many casualties were seemed to be sustained or even particular defeats on the battlefield, that this enemy kept coming and would made it clear that they would continue to fight. So that weighed on them all along. Right? A second factor was the weakness of South Vietnam um, and the weakness of Arvin. And Vietnamization was not really um, a, a success. It's, and in, in reality, Nixon and Kissinger understood that it was not a success. And that was brought home to them, and this hasn't been mentioned today, but it was brought home to them by Lam Sun 719, which was the first time that the South Vietnamese army was going into Laos without US ground troops, and which turned out to be an absolute uh, colossal embarrassment 
uh, to the United States because the troops were supposed to go there, they were supposed to stay, they were going to do very well. And in fact, they're very hesitant to advance. They finally advance to where they're supposed to be for three months, they immediately leave and flee. That's an important thing for Nixon and Kissinger, that they registered that. They could lie to the public about this was a great success. They knew it was a failure. And I think the same thing is relevant to the Easter offensive, which, you know, many ways people can talk about it as, uh, you know, as, as a defeat for the North. But for Nixon and Kissinger, they understood that the South Vietnamese troops had on the whole not performed that well. That was certainly their perception of the situation. The record is full of wisecracks by the two of them about the ineptitude of the South Vietnamese troops. So that's weighing on them also. And third of all, what's weighing on them is domestic pressure. Uh, very, very important, both, you know, certainly uh, from the organized peace movement, certainly from Congress. And when you put that in, I think the key point, um, and, you know, historians want to go on about the particulars, so I'm struggling to, to, to bring it all together. But w what really is true, they had no choice. They had no choice. By the fall of 1972, they were in a situation where there were no combat troops left in South Vietnam. Nobody said that, right? They'd been withdrawing those troops all along. That was the thing that they did, not out of love of peace, but because that's what they thought was necessary in, or in order to quiet domestic dissent, was to take the troops out in increments, but as of November, they don't have ground troops to fight anymore. That's a huge factor in this story. A second thing is Congress. So real quickly, on the role of Congress, people in Congress were always complaining about the war. There was nothing that, you know, that, that, that there was criticism. There was nothing new about that. But even though those complaints had gone on, and even though it was true that Congress kept failing to pass anti-war legislation. By November of 1972, after the election, and people look at the landslide of Richard Nixon, not looking at Congress, more anti-war members of Congress were elected in 72 than had been there so far. And in fact, Nixon's top allies, um, which had, who had supported him all through, Senator Stennis, um, Barry Goldwater, Representative Ford. In November, they come to him and they tell him very clearly there will be no more money for this war when the new Congress comes in. And so it is absolutely essential that Henry has to make a deal now and get the U.S. out. So the reality is that these, that the president and, and uh, you know, and his national security advisor had really no choice at that point but to make a deal and leave. Can I just grab some water? But in many ways, I think that the peace agreement, that, which isn't a peace agreement, the Paris Agreement is actually a sign of American failure not a sign of American success, and not a sign of a commitment to peace either. But one of the things that historians are still debating and public figures are still debating when they talk about the, the Paris Agreement is was this a betrayal, right? Was this a betrayal? 
Um, is that really what this story is? We betrayed an ally. And in one sense, there's truth in that in the respect that there was profound disrespect, profound disrespect for, uh, for the South Vietnamese government and for President Chu, contempt for him. And they lied to him, and they gave him, they tried to trick him into a kind of false understanding of what those conversations were. And when the South Vietnamese expressed unhappiness, by the time you're at that point, uh, Nixon and Kissinger really didn't care. They, they were absolutely determined that they're going to make the agreement with or without South Vietnamese support. So in a narrow sense, you could say that's a betrayal. But I don't think it is. Well, I don't think that's the important betrayal. I think the important betrayal was a, the betrayal of our own people who we sent to fight over there, and the betrayal of the people of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, that the United States kept pumping money and weapons into a war that went on year after year, where the end result from early on looked like it was going to be a failure. But for the most part, the lives that were expended in that conflict were not American lives. There were enough American lives, but then we get to the millions of people in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia whose, whose lives were sacrificed in pursuit of really an American goal for, the, for, for their country. I think that's the big betrayal. And that sort of brings me towards you know, one thing that I think is very important, which hasn't been said about on the American side, right? which is what did our country learn from this Vietnam experience? Well, they learned some things. Get rid of the draft, put more restrictions on newspaper men. But was there ever a time where here in the United States, we came to terms with the tragedy that we had created? That there was any reevaluation of the idea that the United States has the right to put m troops in other countries, in other people's countries? That that's fine. That, that, you know, that that's a problem. There was that, that understanding, that acceptance never really happened. And the reality is, I'm a, I'm a university professor, so I get to talk to students all the time. And one of the things is that the whole tragedy of Vietnam has been really erased. I walked into class last week, and I asked my class, had anybody heard of me lie? Had anybody heard of me lie? No one had heard of me lie. Nobody. And I'm using that, you know, Mila is obviously a very extreme case, et cetera, but I think it emblemizes the failure for there to be any rethinking or any appreciation in our country about the damage that a militarized foreign policy can cause for our own people and for foreign people. And so finally, I think, you know, I'm very struck with the situation in Ukraine. And obviously, you know, everybody um, who is looking at what the Russians are doing there is horrified. But it's also relevant to ask ourselves the question, to what extent does, did the American quest for military supremacy in Europe, taking advantage of the end of the Cold War, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and not seeing that as an opportunity and a chance for peace, but actually for a chance to extend American power, with horrific consequences for people who are not Americans, but who now are faced with a war, horrific war, with actually no clear end in sight to that war. And in closing, I just want to comment in very quickly about the situation in Asia. 
right? Because the lesson that American policymakers are drawing from what's happening in Europe and Ukraine is we need to do more to build up military power in Asia. To, make as to have as many allies as we can have, to have as many military bases as we can get. And we will call that security. And I think one of the lessons of Vietnam is that in the name of security, massive violence can easily result. Militaristic solutions get rationalized. And so hopefully what the lesson of Vietnam should be, I think, for all of us, and in our appreciation that today we can come together, you know, and wherever we were, you know, I, whatever disagreements we had, et cetera, that we can actually talk together and begin to move forward. Well, let's say that that should be the example to be followed. And that coming out of the new US relationship with Vietnam should not be another military alliance, but it should be giving birth to a thrust of diplomacy and peacekeeping. And if we move in that direction, we really will have learned the lesson of Vietnam. Thank you. So these issues clearly still provoke discussion and many opinions uh, 50 years later, which is, which is why we're here. Uh, and uh, I'd like to thank all the speakers for their uh, reflections and, and bringing it up to the present day. Uh, you know, I thought I would be able to conclude by saying here are some things we agree on and here are some things that need more discussion, uh, which we can, we can take further. Uh, but certainly the fact that U.S. troops withdrew from Vietnam uh, as a result of the accords is a, a significant aspect that everyone mentioned. And that regardless of the connection between that and future U.S.-Vietnam relations um, and normalization, uh, there was recognition of the importance of that uh, and, and the value of it uh, between our two countries. So on that note, I'd like to close the uh, public session. Thanks to everyone for attending and listening. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.